If you blink now, forever hold your dying wish When you set your goal, don't give up on it Remind yourself every morning, noon and night I was born for this, and it's worth the fight Life Hey so everyone, it's your favorite time of the week again New episode time with Chris Swick from the depths of darkness to the light of success This prod- podcast and platform is all about sharing everyone's story. At the end of the day, your story is valuable. Does not matter what walk of life you come from, you're welcome on this platform, anyone and everyone. We're here to break the stigma around anything anyone is afraid to talk about. Let's make everyone afraid to not talk about these things today. You know, we have Jen Littner on the show this week. She's a full-time PhD student. We're going to be breaking into things about relationships. She's also a sex therapist, so lots to talk about sex and sexology today, guys. Repairing trust and being transparent in relationships. Lack of intimacy or sex in a relationship. We're touching all the topics today. So strap yourself into that seat, buckle up that seatbelt, and let's blast off into today's episode. You can leap past your fears. And trust you'll stick a perfect landing Remember to follow your heart If it scares the daylights out of you You're off to a good start If you blink now forever hold your dying Welcome back to another episode of the podcast From the depths of darkness to the light of success I'm your host Chris Swick And in this podcast, you know, we talk about everything from mental health to addictions and anything that has a stigma to it. You know, I'm here to break that stigma and I believe everyone's story is valuable at the end of the day. You can find the podcast over on Spotify, uh, Google, Stitcher, Anchor FM, wherever you can find your podcast, you can listen to it. You know, and with no further ado, I'd like to introduce my next guest, a sex therapist from the Chicago area of the United States, Jennifer Littner. You want to take it away and let them know a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me, Chris. So I am a sexologist and sex therapist. I operate a wellness center called Embrace Sexual Wellness, and we do a lot of psychotherapy and sexuality education. Um, As a sex therapist, I tend to work with clients who are experiencing concerns related to their sexual lives and their intimate relationships and um, help them to try and create meaningful change. Outside of that, I I teach students, master's students and doctoral students who are um, in the process of becoming therapists as well as lead educational programs for um, folks who are not in academia as well. And I'm currently working on my PhD. So those are kind of the, the general areas in which I spend my time. That's amazing. And so what on earth, uh, you know, made you decide that you wanted to become a sex therapist and go the, sort of this route in life? That's a question that I probably get asked more than any other question. Um, and I think it's because it's in some regard, it's still like a newer career or it's more, it's definitely a niche area that I think a lot of people um, maybe not know too much about. When I was in um, way back when, about a little over 10, 11 years ago, I was working at a wellness center on a college campus. And we did, it was a center for health and wellness promotion. And I was responsible for teaching a lot of programs about sexual health and safer sex skills. And I became really knowledgeable and comfortable talking about sexual health. We also did some HIV testing, which I became certified to 
to do. I was realizing that so many people were having concerns about sex that were just so much more than what we actually do with our bodies, like, and how to protect ourselves from STIs and HIV and unintended pregnancies. And it, it felt like something that was really pulling me in, but I wasn't quite um, trained to help them address some of these deeper relational concerns and the anxiety that they were feeling. I connected with a another sexologist at the time who introduced me to the field of sex therapy, and I learned that there could be a something, a passion of mine, which was sexual wellness, but also coupled with psychotherapy, which I was already studying at the time. So the two merging together really kind of drew me in and it kind of felt like something that was meant to do after that point. The rest is kind of history. It's a lot of schooling and a lot of training and a lot of hours, but that's how I got into it. Does anyone else in your family like have that background that drew you to it or was it just the running this wellness center at school at the college or university you went to at the time? Like what was it too that like drew you into it just helping others? Well, I felt like first of all, there's not enough conversation about sexual wellness and bodies and intimacy in a way that is commonplace and also scientifically accurate and like helpful information and and shame-free and anti-oppressive and and all of these things and so I think there there was a piece in this that I I saw a void that I wanted to step in and help correct Um, and that was a big part of it Um, in terms of my family I mean there's no one that's in the sex therapy field I um I had heard of and known Dr. Ruth growing up, and and I remember talking with my um, my grandmother about Dr. Ruth, and she she tells her friends I'm like, you know, the the, the younger version of Dr. Ruth. And um, if you're not if you're listening and you're not sure who Dr. Ruth Westheimer is, she's a really well known sex therapist, and now in her 90s. Um, so you know, I kind of had a little bit of knowledge that this was this was a career path, but there wasn't any kind of family lineage or origin there. And are your is your family very supportive of what you're going through to do and stuff like that? I would say my family is very supportive. Um, some are more supportive at a distance than others. I think it depends on their comfort level in terms of, you know, what do they want to hear about everything that's going on. But, um, you know, for the most part, I'm very fortunate that my family is is quite supportive of my professional development. And that's awesome to have that support, you know, and have those people to fall back on and talk about what's going on in your career and your schooling and stuff like that. It's nice just to have that backbone as well. It's nice to have support in general too. So Yeah, I don't think I could do what I do without support. And, and so we, you know, we have this concept of family, but I also think about chosen family and really surrounding yourself with your support squad is often what I like to think of it as, or the people who are going to lift you up and really encourage you to whether it be pursuing your dreams, as cliche as that sounds, or um, just going after a passion. Because I think that not there's not enough energy on that in, in our world today. And, you know, we ought to do things that make us happy if we can. No, I totally agree. And it's all about doing what makes you happy at the end of the day. You know, you're not here to appease others. If you're happy doing it, that's all that matters, to, in my opinion. You know, don't do it to appease others or to, you know, make people think this is, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. If that's what you want to do, then go ahead and do it. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) 
So we got another question here. So do you think that open relationships can actually work? I love this question. Um, I've seen it work a lot of times. I think with any relationship, open, closed, somewhere in between, there's always going to be a lot needing lots of trust and communication, um, boundary setting, etc., conflict resolution skills. All of those things are going to be important. And in open relationships, they become especially important because you're navigating things like jealousy, new relationships, and um, lots of sharing and different, you know, boundaries that are are constantly being evaluated. And those are things that um, that that people often have a lot of feelings and, and thoughts about. And so, I definitely think it, they can work, but they're not the right option for everyone, and that's okay. So, I've definitely seen them work. I think. Like, like I said, all relationships take work. Um, but if it's something that, that you and your partners are, are interested in and um, it's something that you want to make happen in your life, I think it absolutely can work just, you know, with the right amount of uh, energy. And, and like you said, the jealousy part, like uh, if, if you're a jealous person, like you just said, uh, it probably isn't going to work out though. You know, you have to from what you're saying, you have to be open, open lines of communication always around else. It will never work in from what you're saying. Yeah. I think jealousy is, is an emotion at the end of the day and we all experience different emotions and jealousy is a, an an emotion that, that comes up in close relationships in open relationships, right? It comes up all the time. Um, and some of us are more pulled into feelings of jealousy than others. And so I think about like one's capacity for jealousy and how that also, like I also think about the person's values and what they want and what would work for them in their lifestyle. You know, jealousy is a component, but it's not the only thing I would look at in terms of assessing if if an open relationship is right for you. Because, you know, we still have to navigate jealousy even if we're in closed relationships. It's not like we don't have jealousy. So I would just invite people to think about that. And what do you think causes some people to have more jealousy than others? Is it traumas from their past? You know, it's a really interesting question. I'm not, I'm not too sure what it is that causes it. I think there's probably a whole nature nurture debate there around, well, is it, is it something where we're kind of, is there hereditary pieces? Is it about the environment that we grew up in? Is it our, our life experiences? Um, I would imagine socialization plays a, a significant role so how you are taught about commitment and relationships, how you are taught about jealousy as an emotion and how it relates to relationships, I think could play a significant role. Um, in the sexuality field, we have a term called sexual scripts, which are basically means ideas and messages that we carry about sexuality. And I think that we also carry scripts about relationships and scripts about emotions. And I would imagine that whatever script somebody has pertaining to jealousy could impact their feelings about it. And it's how it presents within them, you know, today. No, that totally makes sense for sure. And it's also, you know, nice, like going back to having those open lines of communication. I think that'll lessen jealousy, in my opinion, as well, if you are just open and honest with your partner all the time. 
Yeah, I think the expectation is not that jealousy will disappear, but that we will talk about our feelings and we will work through them and that we will kind of like be able to coexist and experience the life and the the love that we want in addition to feeling jealous at times. No, that totally makes sense for sure, Jennifer. So one partner cheated. How do you move mm. past that? Oof, this is this is such a a question that I think all all relationship and and couples therapists probably have lots to say about. Um, I mean, the first thing is getting everything out on the open, in the open rather. I think it's so important to when there's it's when there's cheating, which I don't even like the word cheating. I like to think of it as a relationship agreement that's been violated, right? So we all make agreements, whether it's like we're going to be home at seven o'clock for dinner, or we're going to be exclusive with each other and not see other people um, romantically. Right? So we all make different agreements. And when we violate an agreement, it brings up a sense of betrayal in relationships. And that can be very, very, very painful. And so when it comes to the betrayal of an affair or a violation of, a, of this a commitment relationship agreement, you know, we've been socialized a lot around how that can be so catastrophic. And some people will say, I can't move past that. And that's, that's, that's okay, right? Everybody has a right to, to determine that. But if you are working through, um, through infidelity or an affair of some sorts, I think the first thing is to get everything out in the open. The person who stepped outside the relationship needs to be very transparent about everything that happened. Um, the details of which, some of which may be helpful, others which may not be. I would recommend getting support from a relationship therapist if this is something you're currently working through. Um, but the reason for the transparency is that you know there's already been this break in trust and it's a big dip. And so in order to repair that, we have to know what is there anything else. And if you start to want to repair the trust and something else comes out later that's damaging, it's going to completely unwound, unwind some of the work that you've done. And so that's why the transparency piece is important. Um, there's a component of rebuilding trust and demonstrating that transparency in day-to-day -day lives. So for some people, that looks like um, using phone tracking apps and devices, um, sharing passwords, things like that, especially as it relates to technology. That's not the right choice for everyone, but those are some examples that some people will use. Um, for others, it's you know showing up when they say they're going to show up when it to to date night or things like that, and you know being available. And then there's the whole piece around unpacking. Well, how did it? How did this happen? What made the relationship vulnerable to this person stepping outside of it? Um, and really unpacking that. And this is like really deep work that doesn't take place in like one day. It usually takes place over um, weeks, months, sometimes years. It depends. Um, but that's generally the process for moving, moving beyond that type of uh, relational agreement violation. Yeah. And it's so true. Like, uh, like you said, you got to be transparent about the whole situation, whether, you know, you are the person that did it or you're the person that had it done to, there has to be that transparency, which I like that you brought up because if you're not transparent, then how are you supposed to regain that trust back as well? Because if you, 
you got to know the details and then so you can sort of pick apart where things went wrong or why you stepped out of the relationship boundaries like you said so I like that you said that though as well very well said thanks yeah I think with relationship like agreement violations many times I would think a lot of couples and relationship therapists would say to you or to anyone about this that usually there's something that made like the, made the relationship vulnerable for that to happen, whether it be a need not being met, someone feeling like they couldn't express themselves. Um, that doesn't mean it's an excuse for the violation. It just means that usually there's some sort of reason why that would be possible or could be possible. And so, you know, getting getting to like, I don't know, in the Midwest, we say like the meat and potatoes of it, right? Or like the underneath, like what is... Um, what is it that led to that? I think is meaningful, but sometimes very, very painful and deep work that folks have to do. Yeah. And it could take years, like you said, and some people may never be able to move past that. And that is okay though, too. You have to accept that the other person or the other party isn't able to move past that. And you just have to respect that boundary of theirs as well. And maybe it's time that you just part ways then if you can't repair that though, too, because it if you can't work together to repair it, then it may never get repaired and the relationship may never be the same as well. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it play out really differently across many different relationships. So um, I think you're exactly right with that. Why do couples lack intimacy or sex in relationships? Mm. Like like sometimes or what, when it goes like broken or stagnant, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I mean, there's so many reasons, but um, I'll, I'll touch on a couple of them. Um, I mean, I think sometimes there's unrealistic expectations about what maintaining a thriving sex life is uh, entails. Um, you know, sometimes that leads to people being less involved or more passive, nurturing that aspect of their relationship. I mean, it's I kind of equate it to other aspects of relationships. If you're um, if you're not spending quality time together, you might not feel, you might not have a sense of closeness if quality time is big for you. Um, you know, if you don't, if you are financially sharing uh, a household or other financial responsibilities with a partner or partners, and you're not paying your bills, right, there are consequences for that. So there are consequences for all of the areas in our relationship that we don't nurture, aka we might neglect. And so neglecting sexual intimacy or emotional intimacy are two ways that people end up in places where they feel really um, distressed around the lack of, of that. Um, there's also sometimes it's not about, um, and it's not always intentionally neglecting. I should make, I should really clarify that most people do not find themselves saying, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I'm going to like purposely neglect this part of my relationship. Um, Sometimes there's a lot of anxiety or stress associated with, with sexual intimacy. You know, some people have particularly, uh, whether it be, again, going back to the sexual scripts or they have sexual functioning concerns that make sex really challenging for them. And so they might avoid that. Other people have challenges in terms of feeling as attracted to their partners as they would like to. 
you know, there's so many different reasons. You know, most of the time I find that people don't realize that how much that it does require energy to keep that flame alive. And there are practical things that folks can do to help keep that flame alive. But, um, you know, if they're not, if they're not doing it, and they're not prioritizing it, it's likely to be neglected, just like any other aspect of that relationship. Mm, That's very well said, too. And, you know, shed some light on that sort of thing. So if people are lacking that in their relationship or want to spice it up a little bit, what would you suggest that they could do? Well, I think like one thing that's helpful is what is the like what is their expectation or not expectation, but what is their vision for what like a pleasurable sexual encounter would be like? Or maybe if we're talking if we're not even talking about sex, it's like a pleasurable emotional conversation or um, an intimate, like an emotionally intimate experience. Cause I want to speak to people who are across different um, arenas when it comes to romantic, romantic and sexual orientations here. Um, you know, so sort of visualizing like what might that be like for them? And then, you know, and maybe they've had some experiences in the past. So reminiscing can be very powerful and pulling out an experience that was, that was particularly enjoyable and thinking about what are some of the contexts or the reasons that that experience was so pleasurable and how could they replicate that in their life currently? You know, for, for many people, it's not that they're purposely neglecting or they're not putting the energy in. It's that the, the, the way that our lives are set up is that we are so pulled in so many different directions to manage so much that by the end of the day, so many of us are just tired and we don't have the energy to put into the vitality that our sexual lives deserves. And that's one of the big issues, especially for folks who are listening who might have young children, really demanding jobs, long distance relationships. You know, I think that like any caring for an elderly parent, all of these different things that are that take up quite a bit of, of our time, you know, really it, it's not easy if we don't pay a lot of make it happen and schedule it and make it a priority. You know, I like that you say that though, too, because there is so much going on in the world, especially today with this worldwide pandemic going on. There's like people are being pulled in every which direction or, and some people are just at their wits end or, you know, you see relationships falling apart more and more through this pandemic, especially I've seen more people, I think that have been divorced or separated, you know, friends wise, or just hear about other people in general and then the whole mental health thing though too i can draw that all together though it's just like a worldwide pandemic with everything going on because everyone's at their wits end everywhere yeah i I like to think of it as how our capacities are just really low right we don't like it's how much more can we actually take we've been having to deal with so much Many of us living with social trauma in our bodies, worried about our loved ones getting sick, seeing some of our loved ones pass, that is not something that is a, and I don't like to use the word normal very often, but that is not a normal day-to-day activity for us as human beings, and that alters our experience in our bodies, um, and that trauma goes somewhere, especially if not addressed, and so we a lot of people are having a lot of mental health concerns, as anybody would expect, given the circumstances. And so you know, I think our capacities being low is a, a context that plays a role not just with our sex lives, but you know, 
with our intimacy and closeness in all different relationships. It's so true. Like it's uh, really paid, played a toll. Like I've taken this pandemic though too and really growing with it just between switching careers, starting this podcast and stuff. I've I've found I've grown through it. You know, I've had my lows because I do deal with mental health. I'm a recovering addict myself. So, and, you know, with lots of those things, like I have seen me personally, I've seen my libido, libido and stuff like that come back because of the drugs I was using. I didn't have one for such a long time, you know, with using cocaine and all those types of things. They don't help you get erect. I can tell you that, but like, and like, why is it that that causes that though? I've always wondered. So I'm, I've got you on the show now. So I'd like to ask you like, why does that like th- that type of drug or, and there's even medications I've on that I was stopped using. Like I went to my doctor cause that was one of the side effects. Like, yeah, that that's probably like a really long neurobiology conversation, but I will say that like they alter our, um, chemically in our bodies, right? What's going on. And that has an impact um, on a lot of things, but in particular our nervous systems. And we need to be, um, our bodies really need to be relaxed in order to have arousal and to tend to that. And anything that is going to potentially interfere with our abilities to attend to those sensations and be fully relaxed and mindful can also have an impact on sexual functioning. And unfortunately, that's, um, you know, recreational drugs, illegal drugs, as well as um, medications sometimes. So um, there are some that are have fewer sexual side effects. Um, and those are always good to talk with your physician about if you're on medication. But um, yeah, it has to do with our brain chemistry chemistry and also our nervous system functioning no fair enough that's a good enough answer like you said it's that's a whole nother topic to talk about we could probably go in depth if you wanted (laughs) but i i'm sure you don't want to today (laughs) and that's totally fine (laughs) well i would be happy to another time but i i feel as though we could get into you know neurotransmitters and a whole lot of a lot of detail (laughs) yeah we could we could could write a paper tonight right (laughs) (laughs) I'm good on the paper writing after this <laughs> dissertation, let me tell you. <laughs> no, for sure. So someone else asked, what's your most interesting, fascinating, or weird case that you've come across, if you feel to share? You know, that's another question that I, I get sometimes. And first of all, I I feel as though, obviously, I, I cannot discuss anything that would would reveal any kind of personal health information in any of my clients or patients. And I think, you know, for me, I'm also, I've kind of, I I haven't heard it all, but I'm, I'm sort of unfazed by this, the work that I do. Like it's not, nothing really shocks me much anymore. Um, The things that shock me are probably not very interesting to people, you know, that are asking these questions. So I don't know that I have a good answer to that question because I find that the work I do feels really meaningful. And a lot of times it's not this like super glamorous, steamy experience. It's helping people recover from really like they're, they're in pain and they're, and they're hurting and it's really, there's a lot of sadness and distress. And I I don't think people realize that. And they're always, you know, we, we're quick to like focus on the sexiness and the steaminess and sex is, sexual wellness is not just that. So I don't have the best answer, but that's no, and, and I don't disagree answer. with your answer at all. Like, 
I like how you said you, you know, you haven't heard at all. Like, like in my field that I work into or like the things that I hear, you know, I haven't heard it all ever. And I don't think I ever will hear it all. I just hear different stories and great stories all the time. That's, that's why I love doing this podcast. So, but I respect your answer and that, that that's a good answer and I like it. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. So bef- take it a little lighter now, like off the sexual wellness mm-hmm. topic and stuff. But before you went through that with this work field of work that you're in, like when you were a little kid, what was your dream job, I guess, or your first job that you ever wanted to do? Oh, I had a couple. Um, and I don't remember which one. It wasn't this though, right? It wasn't this. No. Um, I wanted to be a dentist for a while. I've, I was fascinated with teeth. I was probably the only kid (laughs) that was, I don't know, five, six, seven years old that went to the, the dentist and was like, couldn't wait to see Brian the bear who had a full set of teeth and brush his teeth. You know, um, that was, I loved the dentist. I was so interested in that. Um, I also thought it might be fun to own a salon because you get to, you know, I was really into cutting hair. I cut my sister's hair quite a bit. Um, she didn't always like that, but, um, you know, I cut a lot of my doll's hair. So I don't know. I, I thought that owning a salon would be fun. Um, those are two that come to mind. And then I wanted to be an interior designer for quite some time and uh, that disappeared. So, you know, I had a lot of different interests. And interior designer, geez. And, what, what, and then you swayed over to where you are now, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, I went into college thinking I wanted to be a child psychologist. So where I landed after college is really not, or university, I know, in Canada, sometimes there's a change in language. Um, you know, I didn't land so far off, but I could tell you when I started my career, I didn't want anything to do with working with kids. So something happened somewhere during my emerging adult years there. <laughs> what was family life growing up for you? Like you said, you have a sister. Do you have any other siblings or just you and a sister? And what was it like with your parents growing up? I have a younger sister. Um, I'm the oldest on both sides of my family which is kind of interesting. Um, so I, I had a lot of, did a lot of babysitting and a lot of nurturing of, of younger cousins. Um, and it was, it was fun for me. Um, I, I think I was a, a very curious kid. I think sometimes a bit bossy. You know, I've, I've always sort of been outspoken and assertive. So I, I think that's where it's it's been transformed today. That's kind of, I was, and I was always really interested in, I was very talkative. Like I would go up to people and just have a conversation with them. Some of these things have changed. Others have not. <laughs> well, the conversation part has, and obviously like with the field you're in, you have to be a conversationalist and you sound, you know, I have a six year old and she will talk to everyone going by. Like I, I'm glad that I'm with her sometimes though, just because she's very outspoken and will say hi to anyone going by. It does not matter who they are. And strike up a conversation about whatever's going on in the world today and (laughs) yeah I think it's funny because sometimes like it's really cute and endearing but then you also have to recognize that and as a kid I don't think I I don't think most kids know this but respecting people's boundaries like sometimes you ask questions and they're not ready to have that conversation and as an adult you learn that but as a child that's that's not something that's always so developed so yeah (laughs) I feel that I, you know, and yeah, and I don't know if I'm quite ready. Like, well, my daughter's already told me about periods, you know, so, and uh, she is six, but 
she's got to learn sometime. You know, she, her answer was, I asked her, well, what is it? And she just said, there's lots of blood. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I wasn't ready That's for it as great. a father. I, I have a son who's older, so it was a little different. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're talking about menstrual education early on, because I think more children need that. And, you know, the more that we talk about our bodies and the, and functioning, regardless of what body parts you have, I think it's important to know because it'll become less taboo, right? And we shouldn't be afraid to have periods, whether, you know, however we identify. And so um, I, I'm glad you're having those conversations. Good for you. No, and it, it, it is good. I, I, I like what you said there too, because it needs to be, because some people are afraid to have that conversation. You know, if my son came to me and asked me some questions, I'd be glad to answer. You know, I think his mother would probably send me with some of the questions that if they were male questions, you know what I mean? And vice versa. If my daughter had some questions, I'd probably either have my partner answer her, which is her stepmom or her own mother sort of thing. Like uh, some of the questions I may not be able to Mm -hmm. answer either. So it's good to have lots of uh, caregivers who can contribute to the sex positive journey and learning. And as, and as I think there needs to be, you know, I think there is, it's, I don't know about the United States. I think it's coming about a little better in the schools and stuff like that. They've taken some of it out. And like, I think from what I learned when I was younger, you, you know, in the nineties and late eighties and stuff like that. But um, I think it's coming back again in a different way though. Now, just with how, you know, everyone, you know, cause you have different genders and the way people identify and stuff like that. So I think they're trying to mix it all in together, which is nice, though, to see it, to unify it all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very important to understand, you know, that with menstrual education, I think a lot of times people have lumped that into like women's wellness, but that's problematic for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, just recognizing that, and it's and it's useful for if you're a person who was born and assigned male at birth. And you, and you don't have ovaries, it's still very useful to you to know what menstruation is because I guarantee no matter who you're going to be with down in the road, you're going to, down the road, you're going to be around people who menstruate at some point in your life and you're going to need to know that information. So I think it's just really important that kids are learning that so that they can feel prepared. I hear so many people's stories about their first menstruation and feeling really scared, really ashamed. Like they had no one to go to, you know, it's, it's time we change that. And are you trying to change that with the work you're doing as well? I like to think so. Um, you know, my, the focus of my research is looking at uh, comprehensive sexuality education, which is an alternative to abstinence only um, until marriage education. Comprehensive sexuality education focuses not only on um, puberty and um, prevention of STIs and HIV um, and unintended pregnancies, but also how um, what is a healthy relationship, what does consent look like, how to communicate boundaries, things like that, which are all very, very important, um, not in our just in our sexual relationships, but in our in our peer relationships as well. Um, and so I'm looking at the impact of comprehensive sex ed on relationship satisfaction, especially specifically among emerging adults. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really eager to hear, you know, to see how the research plays out. I hope to conduct it this summer. Yeah, I think the more that we can start teaching young people what they really ought to know and using scientifically accurate information that's not just 
um, not just that, but also it's relevant to them. It's inclusive, right? People need to be able to see themselves represented and hear themselves represented in their education. Otherwise, they're going to tune it out. I promise you, they're just not going to listen, right? And then it's not going to be useful to them. And so we need to give people useful information and take the shame out of it because ultimately, it's at the end of the day, they're going to grow up and need this information. They're going to find it somewhere and they might find it in an inaccurate place. So it's better to teach young people, of course, in a developmentally appropriate way, the things that they need to know. Um, so they can be sexually healthy adults. In what way are you going to conduct your research? Are you going to do some surveys and sit down with like, do you have like a group of people that you're going to talk to that you already prospected? Yeah. So I'm going to be recruiting um, for my research, hopefully sometime this summer, um, TBD on the, the exact time, but I can certainly let you know when that time comes. Um, it's a, it's a, quantitative study. So it's a survey. Um, and it, we're looking at emerging adults. So that would be anyone who is 18 to 25 years of age. Um, and we'll be asking questions about their uh, sexual experiences and experiences of sexuality education. So stay tuned for more on that. <laughs> That's amazing. And you know, I wish you all the best with your research and all that. And with this comprehensive sexual, you know, orientation and stuff that you're going through with a it sounds very intriguing, you know, like, you know, up-to-date research, at least, too, for the younger generation coming up, you know, the young adults through their mid-20s. is, and, and it's important, like you said, too. You know, there's also just so much support research-wise for comprehensive sex ed that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for us to do anything different. It's, you know, this is the most effective way to inform young people about sexuality, which is not just, you know, what they do with their bodies, it's who they are, how they identify, how they're experienced in the world, how they relate to others. It's so many other things. And the more nuanced that we we can identify and we can talk about and we can provide them good skills and knowledge right about, then, you know, the more confident that they could be in their lives. And so I'm hoping to I'm really eager to see how how the research pans out. Um I'll definitely keep you posted. <laughs> oh, thank you. And so where can people go follow you? Uh, you know, I found you on Instagram. What's your handle on Instagram? Because you do have some actually useful information and, you know, intriguing stuff. And sometimes it's, you know, f you, you have fun with it, though, too. Like your STI thing the other day, it was actually, it was funny and cute, you know, in, the, in, a, in a sense, too. But you delivered some good information along the way, though, too. But you had fun with it. Yeah. Well, I think that's the key, right? Like, especially on Instagram, we want to make, we, we want to do things that are and watch things that are going to be exciting for us. There's enough of things in our lives that are depleting and, and, you know, stressful. So people can follow me at embrace sexual wellness. That's our handle. So embrace, like you're giving a big hug, then the word sexual, and then the word wellness, all one word, um, are in our bio and Instagram, you'll find links to um, our blog on embrace we also have an Ask ESW portal, which is an anonymous Q&A portal where people can submit questions anonymously, and we answer them on our website. Um, and if you're in the Chicagoland area or anywhere in Illinois and you want to book a session with one of our team members, you can reach out there. And we also do sexuality parent coaching and have a course for, for caregivers called Building Ease, Talking About the Birds and the Bees. Um, and there's a link in our bio there. So 
lots of goodies in in our link in bio. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And before we go, though, I've got a couple more questions. You know, to do with you, what do you do with yourself? Like, what are a couple things that you do? for yourself on a daily to keep your mental health in check? So self-care is really important. Um, being able to prioritize my, first of all, I, I go on walks almost daily. I find walks to be very therapeutic. Um, I like walking with a friend, with my partner, with my dog, um, or sometimes with music or um, podcasts. Um, and I usually do my very best to do something, some sort of like workout, whether it be yoga, um, I'm a big Peloton fan, um, with strength workouts. Um, I also really prioritize things like taking baths and massage and, um, just spending time with people that make me feel really great, um, that I feel close to. So, um, those are things that I tend to do. Um, I sometimes I meditate, uh, you know, getting sleep and drinking enough water has been a really big goal of mine lately. So have my water bottle here. I've been next to me, my trusted, trusted friend here. Um, so those are hydration, I think is a big, is a big thing I, I need to, I'm currently in progress and working on. <laughs> you and I both, like I used to be the worst for it, especially before I got clean and sober. I would never drink water. I wouldn't hydrate at all. You know, it'd be like junk, junk, junk. But I try to drink some water and I found some good, you know, sugar-free, you know, um, um, before pre-workout things and stuff like that to use now. And, then, you know, I, I like something that, that tastes good in the water too. It's just drinking plain water some days just doesn't cut it. But I try to drink enough water during the day. You know, I have a big 500 milliliter jug that I have on my desk at work and it stays there and I fill it up, try and fill it up two or three times a day at least. <laughs> Good for you. That's great. You know, it's like flushing, flushing out our system with the water. I think it's, it's good for all of us. <laughs> no, most definitely it is. And it, like you said, stay hydrated and you know, you don't feel, you, you feel more energy I find if you get hydrated. So what's a quote that inspires you and why? I think the quote that I often come back to is an Audre Lorde quote. It's when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. And I think this really stands out to me because as a sexuality professional, we get a lot of, and I say we, I'm really thinking about sexuality professionals as a whole. You know, sometimes it's an unpopular opinion um, that people have about what we're sharing, even if it's based in science. And I think it's important to, you know, really make sure that whatever you're doing in the world is like really aligned with your mission and your values. And in addition to science, and I think um, sometimes it can feel really difficult to be in a position like myself. And so being able to recognize the strength that I have and, you know, not let people who are, again, share unpopular opinions who are critical get in the way. And I think that's something that um, you kind of have to have a thick skin sometimes. And I don't think that people recognize that often um, in this industry, but it's definitely something that I think many of us are affected by. And I like that you say that, though, too, because you probably do have to have thick skin 
because you probably get it from all angles. You know, when you maybe make a post on your website or make a post on your guys Instagram and there's, there is going to be people that don't agree with you and they don't all have to agree. But like when you provide science proven facts, that should be enough, but it's not for everyone either. Like you said. And, and one of the things that I do is like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, some things I feel like are just, I'm not here to, I'm here to have a healthy debate, but when it comes to, I will not tolerate any hate towards anyone, especially trying to marginalize people further. There's enough um, distress and oppression and genocide and horrific things happening in the world and anti-Semitism, and I'm just not going to tolerate that on my page. So um, if folks post that kind of thing, like they're not, they're going to be deleted and I will block them and I have no problem doing that because I don't think it... It deserves space um, and a sexual wellness space. So, um, but that being said, if people have questions or they want to learn, I'm more than happy to engage um, and you know hope they can learn something from our content. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight, Jennifer. It was amazing chatting with you, and I did learn quite a bit from you. And I hope everyone that listens to this episode does as well. You know, guys, go follow embrace sexual wellness over on instagram great great content if you're looking to learn something about your sexual wellness or just looking for some good content as well you know around that you know the sexuality and stuff like that thank you chris i appreciate you having me you're very welcome i hope you have a great rest of your day you too i hope you learned so much today about sexology and sex therapy you know and tons about relationships and sex in general because I sure as hell did. Go smash that review button. Give me a five-star review over on Apple. I'm truly appreciative of all the reviews. And if you want to head over to Anchor, leave me a voice message there. You're welcome to do so. I love all feedback from any episode, guys. Now, a little bit about the next guest. We have Barbie Liss coming on. That is her name, guys. Barbie Liss. Women's empowerment coach. That's what she's all about. We talk about the rape of her daughter, And working through the restorative justice system, her daughter was one of the first people in North America to have restorative justice for her perpetrator. You won't want to miss this one, guys. We'll be, you know, she doesn't believe in an eye for an eye sort of justice. We talk about our broken prison system and much more. Stay tuned for the next episode, everyone. Until then, sit back and listen to those old episodes, guys. I love all the feedback, as I stated earlier. Thanks again, and have a great rest of your day.